0: Nigan, you there? Hey, I've got some good news and some bad news. Lay it on me. Well, you know how we arrange for a very prominent journalist from a national news organization to appear as a guest on the podcast?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought it was a really, as they say, good get. Uh, I'm looking forward to that interview. Well,
0: I hate to tell you this, but he called to say he can't do It seems that his organization has its own
1: podcast and doesn't allow its journalists to appear on competing podcasts. What? What? That's totally stupid. Like, How can you find any good news in that? Well, just think about this for a minute. We lost an interview, but eight episodes
0: into our podcast, somebody actually thinks we're a competitor. Woohoo! They
1: see us as a threat. We finally hit the big time. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure that means what you think it means, but let's go with it for now. Welcome to Negon and the Lone Ranger. A note of caution for other podcasters. We're coming for you.
2: The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan, and the Lone Ranger.
1: Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair...
2: And Dan the Lone Ranger let.
1: Welcome to the ninth episode of the NEGON and Lone Ranger podcast. And uh, we made it to nine, Dan. Can you believe it? Yeah. Like we are, we are so perilously close to double digits.
0: I can barely contain myself. Um, You know, and when I say they, they say it can't be done. There were quite a few people actually who said that we, you know, we, that this would not be still going on uh and as long as it has been but uh it is uh, it has become my major professional reason for living
1: so I you know I can't give it up well speaking of things that said couldn't be done uh we are in the wake of a very significant federal leader visit here in Winnipeg Pierre polyev uh, spent this past week in Winnipeg and uh, much talked about much uh, ink in our newspaper was run around uh, Polyev's visit to Winnipeg. And this has all sparked uh, all interest, all hands on deck for the upcoming provincial election uh, this October. And I've even heard rumors that they may call it a little bit earlier, but uh, Winnipeg and Manitoba is just a buzz these days. Yeah. I I mean, I think
0: there's always a possibility of an earlier election by law. It has to be held by late October. Um, you know, so the, the the prevailing theory is that Premier Heather Stephenson will um, drop a budget, which she has already teased us uh, that will have lots more tax cuts. And for everybody waiting for hip and knee surgery, they couldn't be more thrilled about more tax cuts coming. Uh, but uh, yeah, so you know, having uh, Mr. Polyev here certainly focused everybody's attention. On uh, on the political scene, and uh, and I will say that like he very quietly and somewhat surprisingly did interviews, did media interviews, which he had, you know, notoriously not been doing, and uh, which uh, that was kind of a ship that we somehow missed. But I am prepared to say that along with Will Arnett, I am now adding Pierre Polyev to the list of prominent people that I'm daring to come on the podcast. So I will be unleashing the hounds of twitter hell uh no i mean i'm gonna put in an email to his comms guy and say hey you know we kind of missed your guy we missed him that's on us that's a, our bad but we really love to have you on the podcast
1: I, I like to take a little credit for that uh not not me but the paper per se because i mean uh there he is he did most frequently say no media and and of course our reporter reported that and then of course changed his tune so I want to know you know how did that mm-hmm. happen and so on I mean he certainly did about a half dozen outlets and and uh, different pieces and so on but you know this is this week uh is also as it seems to be a regular occurrence in Winnipeg uh kind of a tragic anniversary uh it's a tragic anniversary because this was the week um in which one year ago the Patel family, uh, they're an immigrant family from India, uh, tried to uh, use Manitoba um, as a stopover. Uh, Canada, then Toronto, then Manitoba as a stopover to um, migrate south uh, to enter into the United States. And then of course very tragically Uh, Just near the United States Canada border, uh, trying to travel. I mean, anyone who lives here knows Mm -hmm. that it's very dangerous during certain times of the year. People like to think it's like all the time, but it's not really. It's only a few weeks a year it is very very dangerous to be outside and uh unfortunately his uh their, the patel family perished upon trying to make that journey and it really spot, spotlighted the issue of immigration the fact that there's an immigration backlog in the country uh, the fact that there is many people across the world that want to come to canada that canada does do uh they, they do their we do our fair share of immigration to canada but yet still canada could do more in lots of different ways to support immigrants and of course all the different reasons that people immigrate is often poverty brought on by first world nations yeah i, I
0: mean i think it's immigration is a super hot story and even though i personally don't think there'll be a federal election this year uh, you can never say never but um immigration i think will be is going to be a huge watershed issue In the next federal election. So, you have a federal government that's increasing the total quota on um, immigrants uh, in all classifications coming into the country. Um, You have um, various steps the federal government is making to alleviate the more than 2 million um, applications uh, through the immigrant and refugee system. That remains sort of backlogged. And then that's everything from visa applications to student visas to permanent and temporary residence and everything. Uh, but still, you know, like that that it's a it's a dangerous administrative threat to a major policy plank that the liberals wanna wanna bring in. And you know, there's so I, I expect the rhetoric and hyperbole around immigration to be uh to reach dangerous dangerous levels. And I think, you know, definitely I would expect the Conservative Party to see it as a wedge issue uh,
1: to, on you know, th- you know, with which to beat the Liberals about the head and shoulders. There's about three dozen people who come to Manitoba to, um, to try to get into the United States and then often get caught. Um, And those are just the people that get caught. So we don't know, of course, the undocumented people that come to Manitoba and then travel across the border. Uh, and so it is a very uniquely Manitoba issue, as well as, of course, other places across country um, that have people that try to cross. But, I mean, it is uniquely very much something that we're focused on in Manitoba, and it must be dealt with um, in an appropriate, in a humane way that respects the context of what people are going through as a result of uh, of having to come to this place to try to you know, illegally enter the United States. And I'm certainly not interested in any discourse around walls uh, but i am interested in in trying to figure out ways to support people more appropriately so that we don't have to go to mm-hmm. uh, dire circumstances for people to risk their lives
0: yeah i think that what makes immigration such a uh, an interesting issue in provinces like well particularly alberta uh, saskatchewan and manitoba the great the great plains as the tragically hip would call it um is um like i've been i've actually for stories I've been down to the border many, many times. And there are areas of the border where literally you're driving along a road that goes east-west. And uh, right in the ditch, right beside the road, is a uh, cement marker that marks the, the, uh, the border between Canada and the United States. And I mean, literally, you're standing there. I remember going down with a photographer years ago. And, you know, we were, hey, look, hop on one foot. I'm in Canada. Hop on the other foot. I'm in the United States. Like it's crazy. And so as far as like security is concerned, like it's, I would be surprised if people weren't trying to walk across the border. Um, You know, there's only so much patrolling that can be done, drones, helicopters, you know, vehicles. I mean, I think both sides do as much as they can, but you know, it is also one of the great features of the relationship between the two countries on this continent that we have an undefended border like this and we don't have a border wall. And uh yeah, I mean I would be horrified if any political leader from
1: any party thought that, you know, a
0: fence or a wall was a thing
1: that they well there's already yeah. there's already electronic means. I mean there's yeah you know all the different sort of invisible fences, as it were, and uh, yeah. I, I'm I'm more interested in you know how can we set up a situation for people to be successful uh, mm-hmm. so that they, that they don't have to go to such dire circumstances. But you know, speaking of uh, dire circumstances, is the Canadian housing market, which uh, the Kane Real Estate Association came out. Uh, just in the past 24 hours and have said that the housing prices in Canada nationally have dropped 12% inflation has flattened around 6% but interestingly enough the housing market well, I think largely because the Canadian you know, the interest rates in Canada are be, keep being raised apparently there's going to be another raise in about a week or so uh, is you know cooling the housing market but it's now influencing prices And the leading place, of course, you know, impacts Vancouver and Toronto, probably the most double digit uh, drops in pricing. Uh, But our neighbor just to the west of us, uh, Regina, has seen a 20% loss in value in houses. Hmm. Uh, They're under $300,000 for an average house in Regina. Uh, In we we may be, you know, in a bit of a a stagnant situation here in Winnipeg, only 1% drop in price in Winnipeg. But... Mm -hmm. What do you say about all these housing drops and uh, we are facing a recession of course uh, the major thing that people put their money in for their investment mm-hmm. in the future is housing and it seems to be a loss in value uh, quite like almost like a rock dropping
0: yeah i mean i think it, we're we've gone like we're back to the future right uh, i mean when i bought my first house um in the early 1990s Uh, We bought a house uh, in a lovely neighborhood, lovely house for about $17,000 less than the person who bought it had paid for it. And at that time, um, you know, interest rates were higher. They're about as high as they are now. But the housing market in Winnipeg was just the shits. And, uh, you know, flash forward to, you know, the second house that I bought, you know, was the first, you know, house where I, you know, that involved a six-figure price tag, But, you know, when my wife and I, when we sold it uh, 10 years later, uh, it had more than doubled in price. So, like, it's what goes up must come down. I think what, you know, the fascinating thing for me is the, like, people are lamenting the loss of housing value. Inflation, interest rates have certainly driven that. But, you know, like, we haven't actually fallen to a point where we've been able to uh, really address the shortage of affordable housing in the city Uh, and in this city and other cities, you know, I mean, right now it's still too expensive for most people to buy a home, Uh, you know, the, and the high interest rates, which are used to combat inflation are actually, that's what I mean. Like it's actually making housing less affordable, even as the price of housing goes down, the cost of carrying a home has gone up. So, you know like this is a an extraordinary conflict in macro forces and um, you know i know the federal government is investing billions of dollars um you know but I, personally i don't think the provinces are nearly engaged enough in this there was a, a federal government announced a project last week in winnipeg 17.4 million dollars to build a seven-story building on young street 69 affordable units uh the Apasqua Cree nation is involved in this project and uh, Pasqua providing uh, $1.8 uh, The feds are providing 15.6 uh, in funding. And the province, uh, I guess it's the price of getting on the podium to make the announcement, $105,000. Um, you know, that's not the extent of what the province is doing on affordable housing. But it is kind of
1: indicative of the fact that they need to get in the game. I was uh, just listening to an amazing podcast uh, on the um, Frequency Podcast Network called The Big Story. And uh, I totally recommend everybody if you want to get a primer on what housing bubbles look like. And uh, it's a fantastic podcast. I did it to do listen and to try to figure out because everyone always talks about a housing bubble. And when they get into numbers, like 13% drop in prices. That sounds like a bubble bursting, Uh, but what uh, the market in Canada, if doesn't have quite the kind of volatility the United States has, uh, because what it does is it has what we would refer to as a deflation of the bubble versus a popping of the bubble. Meaning you often see these ten to fifteen percent variations in price. It really depends on when you get in on the market, Mm -hmm. and a large part of it has to do with the ways in which uh, civic governments control. Uh, taxation, and then of course, the ways in which um, uh, things like um, the changing of neighborhoods what's that word when they use when they change the neighborhoods? Gentrification. Gentrification, and the, the way gentrification is working in the country. Um, and a uh, large part is because of the social network. So, mm-hmm. so because of the social network that we have. Uh, The fact that we all pay taxes in relatively fair amounts for the most part. The fact that we have governments that think socially about the welfare of all. Uh, That's why we don't see the kind of drops and crashes like the United States faces, where people are literally kicked out onto the street. So I hope that that people notice that, yes, right now, 13% drop, but yet homes are still somewhat uh, affordable. And it's because of the social network in the country that kind of keeps us Uh, in tune that people are still not uh, you know having to go and work someplace or lose their jobs or because they can't afford their own homes Um, yes and hey listen thanks for proving uh, showing the audience once
0: again that my true value is uh, in a supporting role as the thesaurus
1: (laughs) why don't you tell us about our feature interview today so uh, we've been trying to get this interview for a while. We've been teasing it a little bit on a previous podcast. Uh, we were able to get National Chief Roseanne Archibald, uh, who uh, the first female chief of the Assembly of First Nations, uh, much embattled during her term, uh, having conflicts with regional chiefs, with the uh, what's called the National Indian Brotherhood Board. Uh, there is a a lot of information around the Assembly of First Nations that I think has been talked about in the past little while. Much of it involving conflict, and so we invited Roseanne Archibald to come on, not just to talk about that controversy, but then also to talk about her vision. Uh, she's got about a year and a half left of her term as the first female national chief, and we talked to her a little bit about. Um, what she's looking forward to, but then also, of course, the issues that involve Winnipeg and the ongoing issue around the Brady landfill, uh, the searching for four Indigenous women and the issue of murder missing Indigenous women and girls. And so a really wonderful interview. We're very lucky to get such a, a an amount of time with her. Uh, the interview was almost an hour long. Uh, so what we've done is we've edited that down for the podcast, but we're going to uh, upload the full interview. So you can just go to the description uh, on our uh, the Free Press page and you'll see that there's access to where we can upload the full version, which is almost an hour. And uh, first, before we get to this great interview,
0: we have another episode of The Storytellers.
2: Hi, my name is Giovanni Gioia, and I own Giovanni Custom Tailor at 726 Osborne Street in Winnipeg. And this is The Storyteller. In October... 1976, my wife pressured me to go see Elvis. I'm not a big fan, but we had to go, so we drove down to Minneapolis to see Elvis Presley. If I remember correctly, the tickets were $15 each. The gas cost more. When we got there, and the arena, as seats there were on the side of the stage, and my wife thought, because we had just a small camera, my wife thought, maybe you can go closer before he comes on stage. On the side, because he comes from the back of the stage. So I can, if I can carry a couple of pictures, and then she won't bother me no more. So I went down, and there were lots of girls all around a rope. And uh, I asked these girls if, if they don't mind to let me go in the front, close to the rope, so I can take some couple pictures and leave. I won't bother them no more. I guess they felt sorry, so they let me go in the front. And uh, after a while, we were waiting. This lady comes out looking good from the back of the stage. She was a blonde lady uh, with a full jacket. She comes by me on the rope. There were security people all over the place. And uh, I said to her, I said jokingly, who are you to come out from the back of the stage? And she turned around to me and said, Hi, I'm Linda Thompson. I say, nice to meet you. I'm Giovanni Gioia. Who are you? She say, I'm Elvis' girlfriend. I say, oh, that's nice. <laughs> nice to meet you. Can you do me a favor? She say, what? Can you tell the security guard if I can come over the rope so I can take some pictures of Elvis and go sit down so my wife will be happy? She say, sure. So she talked to the security guard. She let me go over the rope. And then I ask Linda... If I can have a picture with her, otherwise my wife won't believe me if I tell her that. And she says, sure. So we give the camera to the security guard. And she put her arms around me. And we have a picture together. All of a sudden, the music was going. And Elvis comes out with some guys beside him. He looked very nervous. And as soon as he started going up the steps, you know, to go on stage... You turn around and you see his girlfriend, I guess, there, and me beside her, and he point a finger towards us. Now, I know it wasn't me, probably. He was to his girlfriend to say, okay, I got this. To me, it looked like the, one of the guys that go on stage the first time. He looked scared, you know, the, the, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be bad, you know. He looked like a nervous child go on stage for the first time. Elvis, he was Elvis for a long, long time. But I don't think he believed that himself. Maybe. He was overweight. He looked uh, puffy. I watched the concert from uh, Hawaii on TV a long time ago. And uh, he didn't look like that. No, he watched the end of his life. But he played uh, over two, two and a half hours. Straight. No break. No this stage, labyrinth stage we have today. You know, just a plywood stage but he probably was one of the last concerts and i didn't know that and um, a few months later when he died and the the news came on the radio uh, i hit me a little bit okay it's like i lost a friend because the concert was amazing okay i'm like i say i'm not an elvis follower you know but uh, i think he had an incredible voice and uh, he was uh he was one of a kind my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, she was a big, big fan of Elvis. And she went to Memphis to Graceland after he died. And uh, Elvis' uncle used to be on the little thing in front of the gate, I guess for security. He wrote a book about Elvis. She said to him, you know, my, my brother-in-law and my sister saw Elvis in Minnesota. And... uh I don't think that book it was for sale, I think that book it was to give to people uh, that he knew or stuff like that. So he gave a book to my sister-in-law to give it to me. So I have the book still in the box with one of the white silk scarf pelvis he used to give, folded around the book.
1: Bonjour and welcome to uh, our interview here with National Chief Roseanne Archibald. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome you to the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast. Thanks for
3: coming on the trail. Happy to be here. <laughs>
1: uh, I understand right now, uh, National Chief Ar- Archibald, you're, you're coming to us from BC uh, and uh, you're on Tsleil-Waututh Nation uh, territories out there. Uh, it's such a great chance to talk to you. I know you've been very busy and on the trail doing uh, different work. For those of people who don't know, uh, uh, National Chief Archibald was formerly elected as chief of her community, uh, Tagwa Tagamu Nation in 1990, uh, the first woman and youngest Anishinaabe Aski Nation deputy grand chief in 1991, and then uh, the youngest grand chief of the Musquegoc Council in 1994. You know, National Chief Archibald, there's so many firsts behind your name, I could just sort of like list all these different firsts. And of course, first female uh, National Chief of the AFN. Uh, What does it feel like to be so many firsts?
3: It feels very normal for me now. um, Because it's a life path that I've been on since I was really young. And so the first, when I became the first woman and youngest chief in my community, that felt like a moment. And, and I also realized at that time that it somehow wasn't right that I was the first and youngest. Well, maybe the youngest is different, but certainly being the first woman in 1990 seemed not right. Um, and so I really became dedicated to the idea that we need more women in leadership. And so I started to follow that path and, but the path is not something that I always felt like I chose. I felt like the path in some way was choosing me as well, because people would reach out to me and ask me to do these different roles. And so I never actually sort of chased down anything. I I was always, um, which is very much a feminine kind of approach where you're, you're not sort of. You know, out there pushing, you're more like receptive and uh, present in a moment. And I think that that has sort of led me down these many roads, where I happen to be the first. And each time, it was always difficult, and it's always been challenging to be the first woman. And what I learned after a few of these opportunities to create space for women is how much I needed to focus on that as a, as a, as a leader to create space for other women to be the second and the third. And then eventually my vision is that it'll just be so normal for any woman to run for any position and be uh, elected and not have this sort of special title that oh, we have a woman national chief again, or we have a woman grand chief, that it becomes very normalized.
1: It, you know, having, of course, you know, I'm the son of Murray Sinclair, um, who is in so many ways the first of many things as well, too. Um, namely, the first Indigenous judge of Manitoba, second in Canada, and then, of course, all the other things that my father has done. One of the things that I've witnessed is when you're the first, you spend much of your career uh, not all of it, but a great deal of it, uh, dealing with all the things that have been the reason why there, you are the first, like all of the stereotypes, all of the obstacles, all of the attitudes that often were within a workplace. Uh, and so you know, you're know, you a woman in a historically run well, series of them, but particularly the Assembly of First Nations, historically very male-dominated. Um, have you, since your time in office, uh, been experiencing uh, engaging, changing, challenging, many of these things that have led the organization in the past to be very male-dominated?
3: Yes. The AFN has been particularly challenging for me as a leader. And, I mean, I'm in my, you know, and even when I wasn't in elected leadership, I also have to let you know that I've always worked with chiefs, grand chiefs, uh, regional chiefs. I've always been... My work, my life work is around leadership and either being the leader myself or supporting leaders, giving them advice, <clears throat> excuse me. So my, my work is centered around first nation leadership. And so in that I am now, and I look back even to when I was a student, cause that's really where it started in 1988 when I went on my first political fast to, um, protest, at that time, changes to the education funding for First Nation students. And so, you know, we're talking about, I'm going into my 35th year of doing this work. And so each level has its own challenges, but the AFN has been particularly difficult because it is so directly connected to the colonial system. It's a real immediate interface with the federal government, the prime minister, cabinet ministers, uh, the Senate, like all of that whole colonial structure is the purpose of AFN's existence is to interface with that system. And so certainly colonialism, patriarchy, uh, all of those things have infiltrated all of our systems, but particularly it's impacted the assembly of first nations. So when I came in there as a regional chief, I really felt that I felt like, wow, this system is not very welcoming to women and that there aren't enough women. There hadn't been enough women in these roles. And what were we going to do to try and change that? And so in order to really have that kind of impact, it's not enough to, for me at that time as a regional chief to say to the national chief, Hey, these things have to change. You really need to be the woman in charge to enact those changes, to have that authority, to make those changes. So some of the things that we've done that might seem maybe um, not small, but people might not understand the significance of them is the name change. So, Corporately, we were known as the National Indian Brotherhood, Inc., which goes back to the historical ties to the National Indian Brotherhood, which started um, around the time of the white paper. And so there is some history there. At the same time, that name really signified to women, youth, 2SL, anybody who wasn't a man, that they didn't have a space in this organization. And so when we change the name in uh, this past December, it might feel like, oh, the name changed, but it words matter, you know, words dictate the environment words dictate um, the atmosphere that we're in and so changing the name is going to be. A shift. Um, And there isn't, we haven't settled on the name, it's in the resolution, but I think there's still some work to do around that. And, and so that to me, is a big change, even though it might seem like a small change. The other thing we did at the at the start of this, my term is we established what's called the National Caucus of women leaders. At the time we established it, we called it elected women leaders, but then we got feedback that it's really about a national caucus of women leaders, whether they're a grand chief, a chief, a counselor, um, a recognized leader in another form, um, that there was a space for them at the AFN to caucus, to come together, to talk about Things that matter to them as a caucus. And so that happened really early on. We got funding for that within a few weeks of my being elected. We also established the 2SL Plus Council, which also created space for a diverse group of individuals who either had a gender identification or a sexual orientation, or, you know, it just encompasses a whole group that really hasn't been respected or acknowledged within the structure. So in this time of making these changes, it's really that's been my focus is to come in and say, Hey, you know, this organization has to change, it has to become better, it has to become healthier, it has to become inclusive. And we have to create space and mechanisms so that anybody can think I want to work at the AFN or I would like to be a leader at the AFN. I would like to be uh, a regional chief or I would like to be the national chief. I'd like to be on the board. I want to be on a committee, whatever it is. I want people to feel like, Hey, there's a space for me to, there's a space for my voice. And to me, that kind of corporate cultural shift is an important part of what I've been doing since I've been elected. And so, but it's been met with resistance. It's not been easy to go through these things. And I certainly have felt that, you know, I've experienced resistance at every level, but at the AFN level, it's been really, really difficult. And I have attributed to many things, but one of them is that colonial system that we're interfacing with on a daily basis. Uh,
1: You know, I I was talking with you just before we started the uh, recording here today about the fact that you and I both share a past in theater. And, uh, you know, we both share that kind of study of human relationships or that study of people and, and, and conflict. And it says a lot, I think, that you've spent a lot of time dealing with human conflict recently. I mean, you're right to say that there is a uh, a lot of resistance to what shouldn't really be resisted the idea that that women are in leadership in our communities because if you go to the lodge and you spend time in our territories it is the women who are keeping our communities Uh, going they're the ones who are doing frankly most of the work most of the heavy lifting and when it comes to our ceremonies it is women who are the decision makers they're the ones who are the grandmothers particularly but then also other women too I mean the first person in my family is not my father it is my mother my mother is the one who makes decisions for all of us of everything from when we will arrive to what we will do to what (laughs) what food what gifts we will be presenting to the drum Uh, So it shouldn't be resisted, but so much of your time has been spent resisting uh, or challenging some of the things that have happened within your time. I'm thinking about the suspension, the controversial suspension uh, that was covered very heavily by media. Ah, uh, the idea that there was there's been some human resource issues at the assembly as well as the fact that you've brought forth new plans to analyze some of the finances within the organizations. Do you find that right now in your term, there's a, a disproportionate time spent on dealing with the internal things within AFN uh, and not so much the external things?
3: We are dealing with external things every day. It just doesn't make headlines, <laughs> right? We we are working every single day on every issue that's facing our people. It's just that the, the media is not interested in reporting you, on that.
1: Do you think, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a really good point, because when um, uh, I was talking with uh, Dan, the, my partner on the podcast, the Lone Ranger of the, of our, in our title, um, w- the first thing that we were talking about is what are the approaches we're going to take with this interview, and and he, of course, wants to talk about all the things that have been covered in the media, Uh, Because most people probably, if they've heard about the AFN for the past year and a half, they're not hearing about some of the external stuff, which I'll ask you about in just a second, particularly around the issue of Murder, Missing Indigenous Woman uh, here in Winnipeg. Uh, But most people have heard about the internal uh, conflict. Why do you think the media is so obsessed about the internal conflict at AFN and, and not so interested in some of the external stuff?
3: There's a thing called clickbait because we're in in a digital world where you and I talked about people don't really read newspapers anymore. They get their news uh, sources from online or through television. And so I think clickbait and stopping people so that advertisers can reach these people (laughs) is is a part of why the media exists. Um, And it's a source of revenue for them. And so sensationalism is really what attracts people's attention. You know, they want to, they, they want the media I'm saying, or the people who own the media need revenue from, from advertisers. And how do you get people to look at that advertising while you make them stop? You make them look at something that might be more interesting. So the fact, for example, uh, we have worked on a number of issues uh, for women in the last year, we've had a number of things move forward in a good way, but the media won't won't ever really do a story on that. They'll do a story on uh, something that will make people stop whatever they're doing to read their story, to scan through all those advertisements. Well, yeah, I'm thinking about...
1: The, the the gathering in BC, where there was the discussion around the very controversial suspension was overturned by the membership and and so on. I mean, I'd never seen so many media at an AFN gathering other than maybe an election.
3: It's true. Um, you know and and I think that it's imp- it's important to look at this moment in history and utilize this moment for something good. So if all eyes are on me, then I want to talk about things that are important, like MMIWG, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute. I want people to understand that First Nations have really come through a history of oppression, a history of trauma multi-generational trauma that is still playing out today. We're seeing the reverberations of colonialism, of those former institutions of assimilation and genocide. These things that we are coming out of and living through are so much a part of our existence um, that we, we really have to let people know that there's more to First Nations people Than the stereotypes, as you said earlier, or these, you know, sensational stories that might come out. And so I'm hoping that I can use this platform to bring attention to really important issues as needed, which I do. Um, And so when we think about July, and even I noticed this in July, but I also noticed it in December, that when it comes to my speeches, the room fills up, like it goes right to the back of the room. It's full right to the rafters. But then when I finish my speech, a lot of people leave. They just leave the room, and the room ends up half empty as we go through the business, because people are, you know. And and I think about that. I think, okay, what am I going to say in this moment to reach all of these people? And so my efforts are always about healing. That I'm trying to create a sense of. Um, Connection between us and regular um, people that are non-Indigenous out there, for them to understand us and to stand with us, to be our allies, to have empathy for us, and for us to begin to to really solve these long-standing problems that have existed for First Nations for decades and decades and decades. That's what this moment for me is about, is to make sure that the platform is used properly to advance First Nations rights, to advance and help First Nations people, to lift up women, to lift up youth, to lift up 2SL, to lift up our men. I mean, I'm doing all of these changes, despite real resistance, in a male-dominated form. And that tells you that there are many of my brothers that I call, my fellow chiefs who are Um, who are male, I think of them as my brothers, because I grew up with a lot of brothers, I grew up with six brothers. And so I think of my brothers as being many of my brothers saying, yeah, it's time for change, it's time for us to, to move forward uh, in a good way. So a good example of that is a resolution that we passed in December, asking for more transparency around contracts, which, you know, has come has become an issue in the media and is a subject of actual lawsuits right now. And that resolution said that the chiefs have a right to see those contracts and that they will get quarterly reports on those contracts. And to me, that was actually voted almost by 100% consensus. There was one person who abstained from that resolution, I believe, and didn't even go on the record. I I don't think that they wanted to go on the record. I don't recall, but but those kind of things are happening in a male-dominated system. So there that means many of our brothers are standing with people outside of the brotherhood to make these changes. And it's an important time right now. And the fact that the AFN is uh, garnering a lot of attention, I think, in the long run, even though it's difficult for me as a national chief to walk through this and to know that some of the stories out there are not true or that they're slanted a certain way. I still think of the greater good of what this kind of attention can do to help first nations to lift up our people.
1: You know, I think I wrote about this in one of my columns is um, uh, I think there's two ways to see the in or multiple ways to see everything, but two ways to see that particular intervention that was by the AFN youth council during all of that discussion around the suspension and all the other things that were uh, perhaps not looked at as much, but the, when the youth council came up and stood up and said, we really want you to be dealing with these issues and they listed them off. And that's what I want to spend time talking about. But but the, the focus you could take on that is, oh, they're complaining. But the other approach that you could take is, someone gave them the microphone or that someone facilitated an opportunity for the youth who we've never often heard from at the AFN, or not often anyways, not enough anyways, uh, that you that you suddenly heard the youth voicing that expression, and someone had to make that happen. And that, that happening for the first time in many ways at the AFN means it's not just a bunch of people who are in power already, it's those who are Uh, seeking to create space within that larger structure. Uh, And so I think that there's multiple ways to see this so-called conflict that's happening, um, and also see it as an opportunity for that change. And then also look at the changes that are taking place within those councils you spoke about, the committees and so on. Um, I want to move on to uh, the list, uh, and we don't have much time, of course, to deal with these issues in a really thorough way. Um, But I can't, Deny that right now here on Treaty 1 territory, we have an issue with an encampment at the landfill site here in the city involving the uh, murders of two women in particular, but four by an alleged serial killer of Indigenous women uh, and girls here in Winnipeg. Uh, what is the AFN doing to deal with the issue? Of course, not just with the larger issue of murder of Indigenous women and girls across the country, but... Uh, It seems to be ground zero here in Winnipeg of the front line of the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. Uh, Is the AFN doing something about that here, intervening, supporting families here? We're particularly close on the podcast uh, with Sandra Delarond, who we've had as a guest before, who's engaged the issue and of course works with the family, particularly of the Harris family. Uh, What's the AFN doing around this issue, particularly here in Winnipeg? I, you
3: know, my key focus for the remainder of my term, I'm halfway through my term, uh, almost on today. And so I have a year and a half left on my term. And my key focus will be MMIWG, and as well as MMIW boys and two spirited people. You know, like uh, it's women that are going missing, but so are our men, and so are our two-spirited people. And this is going to be my t- my focus for the remainder of my term. It's really one of the top items that I'll be dealing with. And we know that Indigenous women are targets of a genocide. That's what the National Inquiry um, on MMIWG said. They called it a genocide. It is a genocide. It's an ongoing genocide. And so. I did meet with Morgan Harris's daughters, Cambria and Kira, when they came. I met with them privately first um, before they they took the stage and did their, uh, their brave speeches about their mom and about the situation and the calls for action. And so we created that space at the AFN to make sure that that happened. Because that, as I said earlier, this is a platform and we have to use it to bring forward the important issues. And so, you know, I always I always keep a vision in my mind and in my heart of our girls and women uh, being cherished, uh, loved, safe, protected, and treated with dignity always. That to me is what I walk forward with. And so we do have... Um, The AFN Women's Council is doing work on MMIWG. Uh, We're going to be reporting on that uh, a little more fulsomely in the new year. Um, But it is definitely, um, you know, and I support, I support the situation in Manitoba. You know, if any of us had our mom or our sister lying in, a, a municipal dump—it would not be acceptable. It's absolutely not acceptable that that be their resting place. It, we can't. We will not allow it to happen, and it's not going to happen. And so, as the national chief, I'm going to do whatever I can to support Grand Chief Merrick, who I know is, you know, doing great work in Manitoba on this issue, and others in Manitoba who are. Um, who are doing this work, they can count on me as the national chief to be there and to be a part of the solutions and the support that they need. And I believe that ultimately, if we are persistent and we are relentless on this issue, we will start to see the changes. So when these women are found um, and their remains are found and they're returned to their communities and they're given proper ceremony, then that will be a key point that will signify things uh, are shifting. And so I really want us to look at some of the solutions that are happening internationally. For example, in Washington state, there is a, um, a new alert system that they've recently adopted for um, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. When a woman goes missing, there's an alert system that happens. We have to start to enact these these parts of the action plan under that MMIWG report um, so that we can actually start to create this uh, safety for our women and to meet that vision where our women are lifted up in this country and being a woman national chief and having this platform and walking through these difficulties with as much dignity and grace as I can, which is something I learned from my mom to me is a part of that journey. I'm a small part of changing the narrative of what it means to be an indigenous woman in Canada. And I know that I I get, you know, calls and emails and text messages and when I meet women, they talk about what it means to see me as the national chief as a woman and how much that affects them and gives them hope and gives them inspiration to do something in their own lives. So I think that you know on the MMIWG we're going to work on the national action plan. We're going to make sure that those re- those calls to for justice are answered, and that we are uh, substantially moving uh, toward that vision of safe women across Turtle Island.
1: I have one more question for you. I know that you've been so generous with your time for today. Um, this one is not going to be easy as well, but you've come out to reject. Uh, the Trudeau government's uh, very controversial new federal gun control bill. Uh, you know, there are a number of gun related tragedies that happen on First Nations every single year, and particularly this year in particular, uh, that we're seeing a homicide crisis here in Winnipeg. Uh, what is the AFN stance on gun control? And what's the best way to move forward with the issue of uh, making sure that there's safe ways that we can handle guns, uh, particularly for hunters in the in our communities?
3: First of all, we use firearms for hunting, and it's actually a part of our food security um, and our food sovereignty. I think that's what people have to understand, that these are not just guns when they talk about guns in the traditional sense. Uh, Firearms are tools for us, um, and they're not weapons. I, I think that's where there's a philosophical difference between the approach of gun legislation versus how it impacts our rights. And so for us, our rejection of certain firearms that we use for hunting, uh, we need exemptions for First Nations. You know, I grew up, um, I'm not sure if everybody else is like this, but I grew up knowing how to, sh- how to fire every single gun uh, a 22, 40 odd, six, 410 shotgun. 12 gauge. So I, you know, I know how to fire all of these big guns. And I was taught how to fire them safely. I was taught their purpose. Um, You know, I grew up, um, my father was uh, my both my parents were hunters. And so we grew up with understanding that the gun was a tool for us to get our food to to have, you know, our, our, our supply and our freezers for the winter, sometimes. And so I think that the government has to figure out how to um, respect these rights that we have, because these hunting rights are actually treaty rights. They're mentioned in many of our treaties. And so you can't have a piece of legislation um, that negatively impacts th- that part of our lifestyle, because that is why we signed treaties. If you look at some of the dialogue that was happening during treaty signings, one of the most important things our leaders at the time said is, yeah, we can sign this document, but we have a way of living, we have a a lifestyle, we have, you know, a way of being in this world that we want to make sure that this piece of paper doesn't negatively impact that. And so what we've seen, of course, over time is this constant chipping away at that lifestyle, this constant sort of denigration of that lifestyle. And so I think that we're going to continue to stand up for our hunters um, and, and the people who are harvesting in our communities for that fact alone. Um, but does Canada need gun control in relation to violence within uh, cities? Yeah, Probably. Um, and, but that has, we have to find the way forward that it doesn't negatively impact us, but we want people to be safe, but we have a different view of guns. And that's what I think the general public has to understand is these are not weapons for us. They're tools.
1: And you can't just write a legislation that's going to impact that, and then never include people or never include First Nations till the back end, right? Till the legislation's already written, which is the exact problem in the first place: making paternalistic decisions for First Nations who are supposed to be partners in Confederation, but then just declaring a law and then going, "Well, that's that's you, you just all have to accept it." That's not mm-hmm. what the treaties envisioned and particularly is a good argument for what oftentimes the Royal Commission suggested, which is to have an Indigenous parliament of some kind and and uh, or Indigenous peoples operating in collaboration, uh, First Nations, particularly with the federal government when legislation is being drafted.
3: I did want to close out. There were a couple of things that I, I did want to circle back to. One of the things that we talked about earlier is what's it like to be the first woman And I think that one of the things that I didn't really, um, elaborate on, um, is that, you know, this patriarchy that I'm up against and the changes that I'm trying to make. Um, and, you know, I almost sort of like have a, a double, uh, challenge going on. One is that I'm a woman leader and two is I'm a change maker. So change makers are often, um, have difficulties moving things forward because of resistance. And, but as a woman, also the things that I have to deal with as a woman, you know, many of the comments I've received, um, I, I say to people, you know, if I were a male national chief, you probably wouldn't say those things to me because, you know, um, for uh, how you you walk in the world? Men who are sort of take charge are like, oh, that's a very that's a good leader. And a woman who's take charge is like, oh, she's aggressive. <laughs> you know, like there's this kind of attitude towards women in leadership that I think has to change. And I do believe, though, that when we you talked about this earlier about what is it like to be the first woman all the time is even though these are difficult times, Negan. I feel built for this moment. I feel like every experience I ever had at all of those four levels before I got to the national level, gave me skills, gave me perseverance, gave me a sense of relentlessness, gave me a sense of energy of what I need to do in this moment. And I, I've always said this, I feel built for this moment. Um, and, you know, I, when I think about patriarchy, I just wanted to find this quote really quickly because this is what I think we're up against. And, and cause I don't want to make it about men and women. Um, it was Justine Musk and I found it. And she said, the enemy of feminism isn't men it's patriarchy and patriarchy is not men. It's a system and women can support the system of patriarchy just as men can support the fight for gender equality. So, it's our brothers out there that are standing with me that are allowing me to keep moving forward. And I keep doing, I keep walking forward because people ask me like, how do you keep doing this despite everything that you're going through? And I keep thinking about the women and girls, especially who are ahead of me, who, and the women and girls who are watching me in communities that they know that they can survive anything, that they can keep walking, that it's worth it for them, so that I can change the things that I am going through, so that they don't have to go through that. So that they see a path, that next generation of sisters, that next generation of daughters. Um, And I want them to see that women leaders are strong, and they can persevere that we're relentless, and that we can move forward, and that there's a space for them, and that this safe, this space will be a safe space for them when they arrive. And that's why I keep moving forward, is because I know there's a higher purpose of why I'm here. And I try and keep that in my work, you know, I'm going to be doing a lot of community visits in 2023. I always visit communities, because I I want to be at that local level, hearing what's happening. But I am also aware of this higher purpose and higher level that I sit at, and trying to bridge these gaps to make sure that my highest purpose is to create space to create a safe space for women, for 2SL for all the people, uh, you know, people with disabilities, there are so many voices that we have to create space for at the AFN. And, and I just feel like, the other thing I said at the AFN um, SCA is that I used to think of myself as like this relentless, like, okay, I'm walking through really hard and I'm kind of going through these difficult moments. But then I, it came to me in an epiphany that I am actually honoring the sacred connection that I have as a woman to water and water flows no matter what it just keeps moving you can not around stop things water. through
1: things <laughs>
3: yeah. and and that's what I'm doing all the time is I'm honoring that sacred relationship that I have with water by continuing to flow around these obstacles that are in my way and finding new paths and carving new places and even if you think about a hydro dam people think oh well let's look at a big hydrogen the water stopped no the water is actually moving you through the turbines underneath the ground the water never stops moving period and so that's to me is what i'll keep doing for the rest of my term is just keep walking forward uh flowing around obstacles and getting to the destination of this vision of our communities being happy healthy spaces our children are happy and healthy. We're surrounded by the love of our families living in these safe and vibrant communities. That's what I keep in my mind as I move forward.
1: I cannot tell you how much I appreciate uh, the gift of your time. And I know that you've got back to back to back to back meetings. And so you were able to sandwich us in Um, on behalf of the uh, Negon and Lone Ranger podcast, my partner, Dan Lett, A huge miigwech to you for your time and for coming to us from all the way out there on the West coast, uh, dealing with the time change and, uh, much, much appreciation.
3: Thank you for the opportunity to, uh, talk to you. Um, I really, I really appreciate your time and, um, I'm looking forward to, to hearing the actual podcast when it comes out.
0: Thank you very much for listening to another episode of Nigan and the Lone Ranger. A longer version of our feature interview with Roseanne Archipald, the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, can be heard by going to WinnipegFreePress.com and looking up the NEGON and the Lone Ranger landing page. Thank you very much uh, to all the people who helped make this possible, and that includes the great staff at CJNU, Nostalgia Radio, and uh, also the support we get from people at the Winnipeg Free Press. Thanks very much for listening in, and we'll see you again very soon.